I remember one time our family went to Disney World down in Orlando. Uh, before, just like any other type of a theme park or amusement park or whatever, before you even get to the park to have to buy tickets, you also have to pay a parking fee, right? They could combine that, uh, but no, uh, they don't. And my dad was driving, uh, so he drove up to the parking booth to, to pay the fee. I was really excited to be there. So I started waving my hands and shouting, uh, Disney, and I demonstrate like the tone that I use. It was really loud, very high pitched, uh, and I shouted it really, really loudly and over and over again. Dad's nodding in agreement. I think he remembers this story. Uh, Dad was probably shaking his head a little bit. My sister Jen was laughing. Uh, my mom covering her face in embarrassment, uh, as she was probably embarrassed because I was 20 years old <laughs> at the time. Uh, anyway, I continued shouting as my dad rolled down his window to pay the parking fee. The worker looked at me, nodded his head, and said something like, I like it, uh, and then let us into the parking lot for free. Uh, you, so what he did there is that he counted my enthusiasm as payment for parking. And uh, so the embarrassment saved my dad some money. I think he, he enjoyed it. That was a while ago. He still remembers that story. Uh, This morning, we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into one of the verses from the passage Keith preached last week. He he mentioned that was the case, that was the plan. It's not like this is not a correction sermon. This is uh, uh, just sometimes you got to park and you got to dig, and that's what we're doing here today. The verse is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And as a reminder, this is what this verse says in the middle of this story. It says, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, as in God counted it to Abram, as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And what I hope to do today, my my intention is that we're going to see how Paul uses this verse to emphasize one of the most important gospel truths found in the whole Bible. Far better news than saving a few bucks on parking is the gospel truth that God counts faith as righteousness. So here's my summary of my whole sermon. Kids, there should be a, a, if you got this week's kids bulletin, worship guide, whatever, uh, we do have a sentence for you to emphasize here, and that is this, that God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. And we'll see that applied in the life of Abram, and then we'll see it applied to us as well. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. Uh, We'll start with Abram. Abram was an unrighteous sinner. We really need to start with that as, as fact and not have some romanticized or glorified view of the characters and people that we see in Scripture. Uh, we're walking through Genesis. All of humanity has been guilty of sin from birth since Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. We, we spent a whole week digging in just on that. Uh, a few months ago. We also talked about the fact that Abram, at the time of his calling, was an idol worshiper like everybody else. In Genesis chapter 11, Abram is not called because he was worshiping God. He was called to begin worshiping God. He was an idol worshiper. And then we saw Abram as a fearful, foolish, faithless liar 
in Genesis chapter 12. And so we really have no reason to believe anything other than just the reality. Abram was an unrighteous sinner. Then God spoke a promise to Abram. As an expansion of what God had already promised him, Keith walked us through God's covenant promises to Abram from Genesis 15 last week. He's made promises in chapter 12, uh, reiterated those into chapter 13, and then speaks them again in chapter 15. And at the center of, of that, what Keith talked about us, to us about last week, was God's promise to Abram about offspring or about children. And this was where Abram would have struggled because Abram was childless. Let's read again Genesis 15 verses 4 and 5 from last week's text. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is what God said to him. This man, this Eliezer of Damascus, maybe a servant or something else in his house, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then the Lord said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. So do do we understand how clear and how simple that promise really is? Paraphrasing, it's this. God's saying to him, You don't have any children now, but you are going to have a son, and through your son, you will get grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren until you have so many people in your family that you can't even count them. Moses would later write at the time of their exodus from Egypt that Abram's family had grown to 600,000 men in it, plus women and children. So reasonably, between two and three million people. If you wanted to count to one million The internet says it would take you about 11 and a half days straight counting to get to 1 million. Uh, More like 35 days if you work eight hours a day and sleep and eat reasonably. 11 and a half straight days of counting to get to 1 million. So right, 33, 66, we'll go 68 days straight to get to 3 million. It sounds easier to count the stars in the night sky, doesn't it? It would have been way easier at the point of this promise for Abram to count his descendants than counting for 60 to 99. My math on the fly is not great. Whatever that is, 11 to 33 and a half, some odd days. It would be way easier to count uh, how many descendants Abram had than counting to 3 million or than counting the stars in the sky. Uh, because how many descendants did Abram have at the time of the promise in Genesis 15? Zero counting's done. You can't have millions of kids and millions upon millions of grandkids and great-grandkids if you don't even have one son. That's the center of God's promise. You will have your very own son. God gives to Abram a promise that is clear and huge and seems utterly impossible. But how does Abram respond? Verse 6, And he, Abram, believed the Lord. Abram believed God's promise. God said, in essence, I'm going to give you your very own son, and then I'm going to fill your family with an uncountable number of people. And Abram responded, paraphrasing again, okay, sounds good. Period. 
He heard God's promise. He believed God's promise. And what does it mean to believe something? It means you accept it as true. He trusted God to do exactly what God said he would do. This was after decades of trying to have children and not being able to. This was before any children had been born to Abram, yet Abram believed God's promise. We use the words faith and believe a lot. So it can be easy for them to slip past us without us thinking about them carefully, and I don't want to do that today. If I tell you that I have my Bible with me today, you don't have to believe me, do you? Why don't you have to believe me, Kai? If I say I have my Bible, why don't you have to believe me? Yeah, how do you know that? Because you can see me holding it. So that's not a matter of faith. But if I told you that I have a bag of mints in my office today, not the bag of mints that you know, the bag of mints that you don't know about, and that I want to share those mints with all of the kids who are here today, after the gathering, you have to decide if you're going to trust me or not. Do you really accept it as true that there are mints and that they are for you, or do you not? We'll find out after the gathering. So you can believe me and expect a mint and have your mouth water a little bit, or you cannot believe me, and that's a matter of faith or trust in me and what I say. Do you trust me? Do you think that what I say is true, or do you doubt, not trust me, think what I say is false? So kids, uh, we'll just still do like under sixth grade, not student service kids. Uh, Show of hands, do you believe that I have a mint for you? Show of hands. If you're under sixth grade, do you believe me that I have a mint for you? Okay. We'll find out. God made a promise to Abram about something that would happen. Abram couldn't see into the future, just like you and I can't see into the future. But he did trust God to do what God said he would do. Abram was fully convinced that God would give him a son. And then lots of other descendants following that son, simply because God promised it to him. Abram believed the Lord. What happens next is really crazy and truly and totally amazing. It's the rest of verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he, this is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. So God counted Abraham, Abram or Abraham's faith as righteousness. Who, Who is doing this? Who counts? God. This is God's decision. This is God's action. God is counting something. Now, what does that mean? One, two, three. No, not quite. To count here means to think of one thing as if it was something else. Kind of best basic definition I could try to come up with. A little bit of a complex topic, okay? So when God's, he counts it as, when he counts faith as righteousness, he's, Thinking of God is thinking of one thing, in this case it's faith, as if it were something else. In this case, it was righteousness. When we were first married, Leanne and I had very little money. Uh, We pinched every penny we could and then pinched it some more and saw what we could do. Every month, we would set aside $5, and we had to save for it, to buy one pizza, typically from Little Caesars, that we could enjoy together. Now, one 
$5 Little Caesars pizza might not sound that special to you. And to be honest, right now, it doesn't sound that special to me either. But back then, we counted that cheap pizza as a special treat. Around the same time, I was working for a marketing company uh, out of Dearborn near Detroit. Uh, and sometimes I had to work a later shift, which was 12, to 12 noon to 8 p.m. Uh, when we did that, the company would often order dinner for whoever had to stay late, like the marketing execs and the important people. I had to go get that food. Uh, so even though I wasn't important, I got to eat that food often. That was a treat. Uh, they would order from Applebee's or from Chili's or even Olive Garden. Uh, first, that was really cool. Free dinner from a good restaurant. I did gain a significant amount of weight from that. That's uh, not the point of the illustration. Eventually, though, it became ordinary, and it even became boring. I remember a coworker one time saying this, Ugh, Olive Garden again? Right, so he was being paid to eat a free dinner. And it was like, ugh, but Olive Garden? He counted dinner from Olive Garden as uninteresting or undesirable. 1 Kings chapter 10, we read about how rich King Solomon was and the glories of that, kind of that peak kingdom of God's people. It says that all of the cups that Solomon had in his palace were, were made of gold, some of, of pure gold. It says this, none were of silver. Silver was not considered or counted as anything in the days of Solomon. He was so rich and his kingdom was so rich that he made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Would you like a bar of Silver? Anybody? Be interested in that? It's like, well, we've got a pile of rocks. Same thing, right? Is our economy in such a place that silver is like rocks? No, it is not. That's how wealthy he was, right? Because something is what it is, but then there's like how you think about it, how you count it to be, what you consider it to be. So counting, like we read about in this verse, Genesis 15, 6, means something like thinking of one thing as if it was something else. What did God count or think of here? He was faith. He counted faith as if it was another thing. What was the other thing? Righteousness. God counted faith as righteousness. He thought of faith as if it was righteousness. And if we understand this, it should not make immediate sense to us. What would make sense would be to hear that Abram obeyed God and God counted his obedience as righteousness. That would be a very clear statement. We would have no difficulties understanding or seeking to apply that. Right? Maybe we could say that. Right? Oh, his obedience. It's like, well, we know because of our sin, our obedience is less than perfect. And so God, maybe he counts less than perfect obedience as perfect obedience. Maybe it is that, that God in, accepts imperfect good works and that he grades on a curve. Now, a lot of you might not know what it means to grade on a curve, uh, but that means that if most people in a class who take a test don't do well, then, uh, then the, the best grade, even if it's a failing grade, is treated as the highest grade. And then everybody else sort of shifts up. So maybe you fail, but you get a B because everybody failed. God grade, does God grade on a curve? Well, 
I gave these commands, and I guess they were really hard because nobody seems to obey them. So whoever obeyed the most gets treated as if they obeyed perfectly, and then it sort of trickles down from there. We might hear that more in this type of a terminology. Have you ever thought this or heard someone else say this? But if you try your best, God will accept you. After all, nobody's perfect. You felt that sentiment? Have you heard that sentiment? Do you believe that sentiment? So many people live their lives as if that's true, even though it absolutely isn't. It is a horrible, dangerous lie that God just wants your best. God demands full, complete, perfect righteousness. And since he is creator king over everything in heaven and on earth, he has the right to demand whatever he wants. His authority is that absolute. And he has never said that he accepts less than perfect righteousness in place of perfect righteousness. He has never said that he grades on a curve or that he just wants your best. Instead, Jesus said this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on in the same passage, he says what the actual standard is. It's not the best that the Pharisees can do because it had to exceed that. He says, this is the standard by which you and everyone must live. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect, not your best. Perfection. You need a righteousness that you do not have. You need in order to come into God's presence and not be condemned, you need a lifetime worth of perfect obedience before a God who sees and knows everything about you. And you don't have that righteousness. And you will never have that righteousness by your works, by your efforts. It is impossible. And Abram didn't have that righteousness either. Abram was an unrighteous sinner. But instead of perfect righteousness, what did Abram have? Abram had faith, but not righteousness. And then God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. Now listen very carefully. If faith is righteousness, uh, then this verse really makes no sense. Right? If faith is righteousness, then there's no need for God to count faith as righteousness. It would be counting righteousness as righteousness, which is just redundant and unnecessary. So faith has to be something else, something different than righteousness, in order for it to make sense that God thinks of it as something that it isn't. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing of a sentence. We have 22 chickens. If I'm counting my chickens and my dearly loved son is with me and he points to a pine cone and then I count that pine cone as a chicken so that I now have 23 chickens, that's kind of like what this word means. To say that faith is righteousness is kind of like saying 
that a pine cone is a chicken. It's not. Faith isn't righteousness, just like a pine cone isn't a chicken. It's a pine cone, and a chicken is a chicken. In order for God to count faith as righteousness, as in counting faith as an act of righteous obedience, then faith must not actually be righteousness. I'm going to beat this point in to make sure that you guys see the distinction between faith and righteousness so that this verse makes sense. But God, who makes the rules and judges by his rules, God treats Abram as if he was righteous simply because Abram believed the Lord's promise. God has decided that Abram is now righteous. So Abram is now justified or declared righteous by God himself, not because he did anything righteous, because Abram hasn't done anything righteous. But God declares him righteous simply because Abram believed God and his promise. That's what it means to be justified. Justification. This is the the concept that we're trying to get at with this. God evaluates your life and says you are righteous in his sight. And we would think that God would only say we are righteous if we are actually righteous through obedience to his commands. But that's the whole point of the verse. God also counts faith as righteousness. God counts righteousness as righteousness, of course. But God also counts faith as righteousness. And that's how unrighteous Abram was justified or declared righteous because God counted his faith as righteousness. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. There's a, an apparent contradiction in the statement. God justifies sinners. Those are words that can't go together. Right? God declares righteous someone who's unrighteous. That's what that means. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the wicked. That's actually a, a quote from the book of Romans that we'll get to a little bit later. But that's what he did for Abram. Abram continued on this path of unrighteousness, but he trusted God's promise, and then God said, ah, that I count as righteousness. So unrighteous in behavior and lifestyle, Abram is declared righteous in the sight of God. And the reason I'm focusing in on this verse today, again, is not because Keith didn't do a great job. It was a wonderful sermon last week. We just agreed a way to dig in on this. But Genesis 15, 6 is quoted, that phrase that, we've, that we're talking about, quoted three different times, three different New Testament passages. So apparently this, is a, this one's a big deal. Paul uses it in Romans 4. He uses it again in Galatians 3. And then James uses it in James chapter 2. This very sentence, this very verse And in future weeks and future Genesis passages, we're planning on referencing uh, Galatians 3, James 2. Today, I want to focus in on Romans chapter 4. All that was kind of introduction. Can you turn to Romans chapter 4, please? I want to hear rustling. Love the sound of rustling. Thank you, Robbie. Romans chapter 4. Because I want you to see it. 
I don't just want you to hear it, I want you to see it. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here's the quote. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The one who does not work, but in contrast to work, without work, with no consideration of righteous behavior, but believes that one is counted as righteous. That one is justified. Like Abram, we are unrighteous sinners. This is the point that Paul labors to make in uh, the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And if you're familiar with that, uh, you know Paul spends most of those first three chapters, I think it's about 64 verses leading up to this, emphasizing that every human being Uh, is a unrighteous, an unrighteous sinner. No exceptions, no excuses to where he could come to the summary statement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And furthermore, there's no way for us to undo our unrighteousness by starting to behave righteously. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to balance the scales or make up for it. I don't remember a specific instance of this, but I can't imagine as a kid my parents telling me not to play with a ball in the house. But I, but I can imagine myself doing it anyway and then breaking a window. Do you remember that feeling in your stomach when there's no escaping it? I can't replace a window. There's no way I can undo this. You've done something wrong and you can't escape it. That guilt, that like, oh no, right? Do you remember what that's like? Some of you may have experienced it yesterday. I don't know. Well, what should I do next? Well, I clean up the broken glass. And then I sweep the whole house. And then I wash all the dishes. And I clean my room. And I sort and wash and fold and put away all the laundry. And I finish my homework. And I cook dinner. And I mow the lawn. And then I sit at the kitchen counter with a smile on my face, having washed and combed my hair, so that when mom and dad walk in, they will be pleased with me. They'll probably be like, what happened? Right? But even if it's not immediate, at some point, they're going to ask me what question? What happened to the window? And there's nothing that everything that I've done to try to please my parents that can undo the fact that I broke the window. 
and that I'll suffer the consequences for that. Righteousness, attempts at righteousness, cannot erase the fact of unrighteousness. And you started off guilty according to God's word. I would have been a disobedient, unrighteous son standing in a clean house. Didn't change who I was. Didn't change what I had done. We are never more eager to obey than when we are desperate to escape the consequences of our disobedience. But we cannot erase or replace the fact of our sins. We are unrighteous sinners before God. You are an unrighteous sinner naturally before God. And Paul writes in Romans 3, 20, just one page over for me, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So because, right, God counts righteousness as righteousness. It's redundant, but it's still true. But the fact is, you have no righteousness. And if you have unrighteousness, which you do, If you have sin, then no amount of obedience can take the place of that. So when all things are evaluated, your sin and your obedience all put on display and an evaluation comes through, what rises to the top and sticks out and corrupts everything else is the fact of your sin. You cannot escape that. So if God only counts righteousness as righteousness or obedience as obedience, we are all doomed for we are not righteous. Our only hope is if God does something else also. But why should we expect that? If only God's word would tell us. And it did, all the way back in Genesis 15. See, God has spoken promises to us as well. Before Paul started into those 64 verses proving how sinful we all are as human beings, He wrote with joy that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what is the gospel? Gospel is good news about Jesus. That Jesus is God's son who was born as a human just like us, except without sin, because throughout his whole life, Jesus lived righteously. Jesus never sinned, not even once. Then he was crucified, he was nailed to the cross, and on the cross, God punished Jesus for sin, but not for his sin. He had no sin, he knew no sin. He was punished for our sin. Jesus took the full punishment that we deserve all the way to the point of dying for us. And then after three days of being dead in the grave, God raised Jesus from the dead. And through Jesus, God promises that forgiveness is available. This great verse that Paul says that all of the promises of God find their yes, their amen, their truth in Jesus. Jesus is the center and the substance of God's promises to his people. Not only is forgiveness available, but escape from punishment is available. Peace with God is available. Eternal life with God as part of his family is available to us according to the promises of God spoken to us in his word. We are unrighteous sinners, but God has spoken promises to us in the gospel. In his word, God has given us a promise of salvation that is clear and huge 
and seems utterly impossible. So do you see how similar that is to what we have heard, to what Abram heard? No, the content of the promises are not the same. The content is different. And throughout the Bible, we see a variety of promises that God makes to different people as we see his plan of redemption progressively unfold. But the response of God's people to God's promises is always the same. And that response is what? Faith. God's people believe God's promises. Whatever that promise may be, we too must believe God's promises. When Abram heard God's promise to give him a son, he believed the Lord who made that promise. That's a great part of that verse. Not just that he believed in God as in some sort of existence piece. He knew that God was real, but that's not what the verse says. He believed the Lord. He trusted that what he said was true. Right? You see, there's a difference between those type of things. Sometimes we think that faith only extends to this vague, like, oh yeah, I, I believe there is a God. Or I, I wish it to be true that there's something that I can't see. That's different than trusting a person to keep his promises. That's what faith is biblically. Hearing God's word and accepting it as true, even if you can't see it to be true. Abram trusted God. By faith, He accepted that what God said was true. It's like Abram said, okay, sounds good. Or yes, I am convinced that that will happen. I am convinced that you will give me a son. And we must have the same kind of faith as Abram. We must also believe God's promise. Not about God giving us our own son, but about God giving us his own son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died in our place, then rose from the dead. Do you accept it as true that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice for your sins, and rose again from the dead? Do you trust God's word when it says that forgiveness and eternal life with him, with him, are available to you because of and only because of Jesus. That's the promise of God's word, and we must believe that to be true. If so, if you, having heard the promise of God, believe the promise of God to be true, then God also counts your faith as righteousness. Just like he counted Abram's faith as righteousness, God counts your faith as righteousness. So it can be said of you, like it was said of Abram, Jackson believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Jackson as righteousness. Or it can be said... Mary Ann believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Mary Ann as righteousness. By all means, don't take my word for it. Let's look at God's word. Are you still in Romans? Are you still in Romans chapter 4? Then listen to Paul make that exact same connection and that same point starting in verse 23. Do you see this? Are you with me? Romans 4, 23. But 
the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his or Abram's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The same treatment that Abram received from God, we receive from God. Abram, an unrighteous sinner, us unrighteous sinners. Abram heard the promise spoken by God. We hear the promises spoken by God. Abram believed those promises that he had heard God spoke. We believe the promises that God spoke. God counted his belief, his believing, his faith in those promises as righteousness. God counts our faith as righteousness. You need righteousness, but you don't have any. And you can't get any merely by trying to obey. But praise God, he counts faith as righteousness or in place of righteousness. So, zero righteousness plus faith equals all of the righteousness that you need. And a lifetime of attempts at righteousness by an unrighteous person plus no faith equals no righteousness. Many reject no works plus righteousness equals righteousness. Many reject that. They insist that we must be righteous by our works, by our behavior. We must be righteous in order for God to count us as righteous. The Roman Catholic Church is one example of this. They would call it a legal fiction for us to be counted as something that we aren't. We would say it's an, and it's an offense against the justice of God that he cannot count something as righteous that isn't righteous without considering any of our good works, which is the very truth of this passage. They would say that's false. Again, they would say, no, that's legal fiction. They would insist that God will only count us as righteous if we really are righteous. And so justification remains something that is the, the product of an evaluation after your life is done. The verdict is still out. We believe, as Moses wrote about Abram, and as Paul made the connection about us, that by faith the verdict is already in before your life walking with God begins. Before you have an attempt to be able to, with God's help, make decisions about righteousness and start living in obedience as a Christian, the declaration of you are righteous is already set. What a difference. Right? So, um, if God only counts as righteous those who really are righteous, that's really terrible news, isn't it? You know your life. No one knows your life. No one here knows your life better than you know your life. God knows your life better than you know your life. But based on what you know about yourself, are you really with a straight face, going to say that it would measure up? Do you really believe that? You don't. No one believes that. We all know we fall short. 
Whatever your moral standard is, however it compares to God's word, nobody lives up. Nobody's good enough. We all end up with the same thing of there is no one righteous. All the best that we could do is to try to distract whatever God is watching by trying to point to other people. Instead of looking at my righteousness, I'd be like, well, look at his unrighteousness. God, when God calls you to account, be like, yeah, yeah, but what about her? God will deal with her. God will deal with him. But God's gaze is fixed on you. And you are unrighteous. And I am unrighteous. When have you ever been satisfied with your efforts to do what is right and please God? I've never been satisfied with that, right? Instead, aren't you always left with questions like, did I do it right? Did I do enough? Could I have done more? Should I have done more? Right? All those type of questions. That the answer is no, you didn't do it right. <laughs> the answer is no, you didn't do enough. You can't earn righteousness on your own through obedience to any set of rules. I don't know any of you that have, we're trying to decide today, should I go to Mass? Should I come to Risen King? Maybe you did make that decision, but I don't know of any of you that did. But sadly, it isn't only the Roman Catholics who reject this. Many who call themselves Christians have missed this foundational truth as well. But instead of replacing faith with works, it's far too common for us to redefine faith as a work. So we can say that we believe salvation is only through faith or by faith, but what we mean is that we're saved by works which is faith. And do you hear that that's a different statement? They're they're conflating faith, they're making it an act of righteousness, and then saying, ah, yes, so now I'm declared righteous because of my righteous faith, because of my obedient faith. Many times this is done by emphasizing a sinner's prayer for salvation to the point that that prayer becomes a work. So we could ask this, was I at the right place in a church building? Was I at a church altar? I'd point here, we don't have altars, we just have steps. Justification by geography. I was at an altar, so it must have worked. Was I in the right position? Was I, was I kneeling? Was I prostrate? Was I on my, my face before him? Justification by humility? Did I say the right words? Is that justification by quotation? It sounds more like a magic spell than it does anything that I find in Scripture. And if it is those words, what words? Because there's no specific prayer repeated anywhere else in Scripture that every person speaks. Did I mean it enough? That justification by sincerity? Did I feel bad enough about my sin? Justification by remorse? Did I cry enough? Justification by emotion? I submit that each of the the things become an effort to trust in yourself and to trust in your faith rather than trusting in Jesus. It's all of our tendencies. We all want to be justified by our works. I do. I'm desperate to try to find a way to be justified by my works, but it's not going to happen. 
can only ignore the fact of my unrighteousness or inflate uh, the efforts that I have at righteousness to try to make a case for those type of things, but it just doesn't work. It falls flat. Paul himself saw it fall flat. And so he said, I don't want to bring anything in my hands to God to be justified by my works because I have nothing to bring. It's just garbage. So I want to empty my hands of my work and I just want to come and have and know Jesus. I just want to receive the promises of God and believe them and have that counted to me as righteousness. Don't trust in yourself and in your faith and in the words and in the emotions and in the time and the place. Don't trust in those things to save you. They can't. That's you trying to save yourself and you can't save yourself. You are not saved by the quality of your faith, how good it is, or by the quantity of your faith, how much you have, or by the expression of your faith, prayers, tears, life changed. You cannot be saved by any of those things. You're only saved by Jesus. And it's not the same thing. There's a thing and there's the expression of the thing. I'm not married by putting on a ring. I'm married by having entered into a a loving covenant with Leanne. That's why I'm married. So ring, no ring, right? There's just, there's the thing. There's our union. Then there are the expressions of it, right? So that's love. We only know love by its expressions, but the expressions aren't love themselves. So you can express, right? You can fake expressions of love without having love, You can have expressions of faith without having faith, but you aren't saved by the expressions of faith. You're saved through faith in Jesus. So don't trust in trust. Don't believe in believing. Don't have faith in your faith. Your faith on its own is insufficient to save you. But Jesus saves those who believe in him. So believe in him. And then God says that faith, which isn't righteousness, I count it as righteousness. And it's the only way we can have righteousness that we need. The only way. You are saved not by the quality or the quantity or the expression of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. Do you trust God to keep his promises that he has made in the gospel? And if you trust him, then he counts that faith as righteousness. Be free. This is is a, a plea for you. The phrase that Keith always uses, right? The freedom that we have in Christ. Beloved ones, be free of trusting in yourself. Be free of trusting in your faith. Be free of trusting in your prayers to save you because they can't. How many of us, countless nights, countless services, countless whatever, have prayed again and again and again and tried a different word, tried a different posture, tried a different place, tried to mean it more, tried to feel worse, tried to feel better, and tried to look at those things countless, countless times I've tried to save myself by my prayers. But it never works and it never will because you're not saved by words. You're saved by Jesus, right? So don't reduce faith to its expressions. Just Trust in Jesus. God says he'll do it, and you say, okay. And then God says, now you're righteous. And you're like, you've got to be missing something. I'm really not. Like, that's what the passage says. Before Abram did anything else, 
God said, I'm going to give you a son. Abram's like, okay. God said, you're righteous now. We're like, let's read through the lines. Let's find something else. That, it can't be as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And it's the only way for you to be declared righteous in God's sight. Is accepting his word is true. Stop looking to yourself and look to Jesus instead. The looking to Jesus is what faith is. Faith is looking to Jesus and trusting him. And whether that's, this is the first time, like you've never come to understand that, and the Holy Spirit is kind of like, right, settling that on your heart, like, oh, that's it? That is it. And so whether it's the first time that you're not looking at yourself and your own efforts, but you're looking to Jesus, then that's what you need to do. Trust in him. Whether it's the 10,000th time that you need to be reminded of the fact that you're an unrighteous sinner, that God has spoken the promise of the gospel to, that by believing you are counted righteous. Right? The answer is always look to Jesus. The answer is always trust in him. And that's the lesson that was impressed on me by God just kindly. It probably was from a sermon. I don't remember the sermon. I do remember the truth. How humbling that is for, for preachers. And much better for you to remember truth and not for you to remember sermons. At 4, at 5, at 10, at 12, at 40, at 50, whatever prayer you prayed, whatever you meant, whatever you said, however you felt, don't look at that for the fact that you are righteous in God's eyes. Look at Jesus and believe God's promises in him. Right? And be renewed in that every single moment of every single day. So this isn't just a sermon for like the un- any unchristian that might be here. Right? I, didn't, I didn't pivot thinking that this was just kind of like a service that just like all these unsafe people would flood into. Because we as God's people need the same thing. It's like we're never righteous because of a works that we have done. We're only righteous through faith in Jesus. So every time that you are confronted with the inescapable reality of your unrighteousness, then hear God's promise in the gospel and believe his word to be true and rest with assurance that God counts your faith as righteousness. And from the beginning of the Bible, now, forever, this truth will forever stand. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. It's a glorious truth, Father. Even knowing your word teaches it, it still just seems like missing something, but we're not. You are that gracious and merciful to us as sinners. Please open our eyes again for the first time or the 10,000th time to, to see the, tr- the simple truth of that, to believe the promises of your word, to rest in your declaration over us. This one, my faith is righteous. I count, I count faith as righteousness. As to the glory of your name, you are the God who saves. Amen.